This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pilgrim Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Fantasy Humans. Chicago News Wars. Setting Licensing. And Tom Dryberg. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom, Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, we look around the table, and regardless of what it says on the page, we see humans. And sometimes, even, even in the most fantasy of games, we look down at the page, and we also see humans. What's up with that, Robin? Why are there humans in F20, I guess? And given that there are going to be humans in F20, what do we do about them? I mean, aren't they boring compared to elves and dwarves and hobbits and such? Right. So, and of course, uh, for those just joining us, F20 is the umbrella term that we use uh, hereabouts to refer to uh, D&D and all of its literal, legal, and spiritual descendants. And so we're talking about kind of your default uh, Tolkien meets sword and sorcery style uh, setting. And uh, I guess there are games in this instance that are uh, have the spiritual roots of D&D, even though they use quite different mechanics. And as you pointed out, the uh, the role of humans in fantasy, I guess, obviously, if you it's very rare that you look at uh, any work of sword and sorcery or uh, Tolkien-esque fantasy and uh, have no humans in them. It's a typical thing. It's the most relatable of the uh, possible uh, species or varieties of uh, uh, beings that you can have in a game. And 
therefore uh, it's accessible. You don't have to explain to people what a human is. You're just a human. And I think that's the the, the appeal of that character is that it is uh, simple to play. You don't need a lot of explanation. You don't need a lot of extra detail. And for a certain breed of gamer, for example, the casual player, it's just uh, easier and more comfortable and, and simpler. And uh, you can uh, just be a human and have some other thing be the thing about you rather than the legends of the dwarves or the elf's propensity for nature and arrows and so forth. Yeah, I think the other thing that we should probably give a nod to as we're discussing it is that when you say sword and sorcery and Tolkien, um, obviously in sword and sorcery, humans are the overwhelming majority or sometimes the entirety of the sentient on-screen characters that are not monsters. Uh, for example... Right. Were, were this another segment, I could argue that that's actually the, the dividing line between the two subgenres is... One has elves, the other doesn't. If uh, if D and D is half Tolkien and half Howard to be reductionist, because obviously there's Poole Anderson and a million other things in there. But if it's half Tolkien and half Howard, the Howard half is all human. Uh, the Jack Vance half is all human uh, as well, right? There's no non-human protags in the dying earth, unless you count like Pelgrains and right. stuff. They, they have a conversation with you before but, they but, eat but, you. You know, so but, do Manticores. That doesn't count. No one's playing a Manticore. Yeah. More is the pity. But also in uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the, it's because it's about the rise of humans. You've got uh, even though they're actually Atlanteans, they're Dunedain. They're still humans, right? Aragorn is still a human ranger. He's not a Dunedain ranger. If you're setting them out in D and D terms, right? Right. So yeah. So uh, besides familiarity. I would say the other thing that humans can provide you with is a, a way to uh, clone historical or fantasy cultures, uh, because A, the sources of so much of the heroic fantasy that we're talking about have human cultures. So if you're going to say it's like Stygia, it's full of humans, right? If it's like Sumeria, it's full of humans. If it's like Aquilonia, it's full of humans. Similarly, if you're saying this is the Greek city-states, this is viking land this is ancient china whatever you know earth culture you're deforming and adding centaurs to is also going to be a primarily human culture and in order for the mapping to seem as plausible as it ever does you want to start with humans because if you're saying it's the greek city-states but they're elves then even the most um uh, relaxed world builder will begin to think but the greek city-states didn't have a lot of trees around and also people in the Greek city-states sort of presumed that they would die like humans and not live for 700 years because that's kind of what democracy entails. And so there was a lot of, you know, I, I think sort of instinctual resistance that if you're going to be cloning exciting times, the exciting times that we know about are all pretty much human ones. And we don't really have an immediate understanding of if you're going to have three kingdoms of dwarves, all of them at war with each other, it's a lot harder uh, like you say, to get people on board with that and get people interested in that, as opposed to if you say there's Viking Kingdom, there's Han China Kingdom, and there's Greek City-State Kingdom, go. And I was like, okay, I, I get what those three guys are. Right. And taking the tropes of any given uh, fantasy race and then melding them to a human civilization can be interesting, but it is not simple. So if you were to say, well, these are uh, these elves are like the Aztecs. Well, it's a mashup. It's halfway between those two things, and you have to then define which part of the culture is the elf part and which part is the Aztec part. And that could be uh, cool and interesting, but it opens up more questions than it answers and then and requires more attention. You can't just go... Uh, and, and some would be, you know, obviously better fit than others. 
you know, uh, dwarf ninjas does not seem quite so uh, apt as uh, uh, elf ninjas or or what have you. But that's where you get to the weird... Hobbit ninjas, on the other hand, that could work. I'm sorry, halfling ninjas, that could work. Yeah, that could work. Uh, Often the attempt to define gnomes, uh, which we discussed on the live episode, uh, as different than halflings, uh, makes the gnomes kind of ninja-y. But at any rate, uh, that points to a sort of an interesting kind of divide where the assumption is that humans will have many cultures in a setting and all of the non-humans will have a single culture each, perhaps with little variations. And that's because there are, you know, popular uh, tropes associated with dwarves and elves and so forth. So, you know, the dwarves are taciturn and live underground, that everything that makes them dwarves includes cultural elements where being a human seems to imply uh, sort of a uh, propensity to develop different uh, cultures. And that reminds me of a time when I was asked if I wanted to work on a F20 uh, supplement. Their uh, company was doing a series uh, of splat books, each for a different race, and said, we can't really think what to do with humans. Would you like to do that? And fortunately, um, I was too busy to, to, to take it on because it's actually kind of a difficult and self-contradictory assignment in that uh, perhaps the point of humans is that they are kind of malleable and they're whatever you want them to be, and that by defining them, you're doing a disservice to the people who want to play them, because either they want to play them as a version of an uh, an Earth culture, or they just want them to be the sort of standard default, not that interesting uh, character that I don't have to work that hard at portraying and just makes sense to me. And so that's uh, you know an interesting puzzle is... If you have a group of people where everybody kind of agrees that the humans are boring and everybody wants to play an interesting, uh, different race, uh, you can, uh, or species or whatever, it's it's odd c- trying to come up with a proper uh, term that doesn't have a negative connotation. How about Volk? How about that would work? <laughs> vo- <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's a total improvement there. Um, but at any rate... Uh, if you have a group where everybody agrees that the humans are boring, the question then becomes, uh, if you want them in your setting and you maybe want them available as a player uh, character option, what do you do to make them more interesting? And I guess one of the traditional ideas, again, is that the humans are, and I guess this kind of comes from Tolkien, is that the humans are really adaptable. They can uh, change themselves in a short period of time in a way that the older races can't. Uh, because their, their youngness kind of defines them. And then in rules terms, they kind of become a jack-of-all-trades character where it might be easier to multi-class or you might be able to move your, you know, just pick whatever bonuses you want rather than taking, you know, the set bonuses that, to say, strength and constitution that dwarves always get. You can just, uh, and kind of make them a kind of a, a mix-and-match kind of uh, option in terms of the crunchy bits. Yeah, the the crunchy bits is the interesting thing because the things that... It's always fun to read, you know, your your um uh, your D and Ds and your Thirteenth uh, Ages talking about the the traits that we understand are all humans, and they're always like humans are the most uh, inventive and independent and adventurous of races. And you know, people talk about D and D being a thinly skinned uh, Wild West, but I mean, this this is even more so because the humans are not just humans, uh, right? They're often of very thinly disguised Americans in fantasy land. They're not even, you know, potentially 
you know, you could just as easily say humans are the most thoughtful and philosophical of all races, right? I mean, we've produced more philosophy than the elves have, obviously, but no one in America ever does that because we think of humans as being inventive explory types because that's what our sort of self-image is, is that we're inventive explory types. But so the notion that even given all of humanity to make the baseline in fantasy world, we rapidly default or, and you know, I say we, I've never written a role playing game, but obviously in Star Trek, we did the same thing, right? We said humans are the luckiest and most, um, uh, and I think we had extra skills, right? Because the Vulcans were supermen. And so it was very hard to balance against those guys. So, you know, it, it extends even more so into science fiction games as well. If you're, if you're trying to do that kind of thing. And I think in Ashen Stars, aren't they, aren't they humans? Don't, don't the humans get extra skills or something like that to balance them out? Yeah. They're a little more flexible. Right. So, I mean, so the, the human race is often, uh, uh, a notes just for uh, Western Americans or for, uh, occasionally, uh, Western Europeans in general. But it's, it's an interesting, I guess you could call it an homage to the fact that, you know, Robert E. Howard was an American and that, um, uh, uh, even, you know, as far back as, uh, as Stoker, people were seeing Americans as sort of this ideal type of the Western race because we were raised, you know, um, uh, we were sort of free range Europeans, you know, uh, not hemmed into ugly pens, but allowed to run around and kill whatever we wanted to. Right. Even in Tolkien, right? The, uh, the humans are not the, uh, author's identification, right? The, the hobbits are the Brits. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you've got your, uh, elves are uh, kind of Celtic slash Irish and the, Dwarves are obviously Scots, and uh, and I guess that whole idea of a uh, a youthful race is part of the idea of just you give the other um, fantasy species this giant long backstory, and the uh, humans don't have quite as long a history. And again, that uh, floats onto the uh, tropes of the humans as Americans. So you might have a. It might be interesting to have a game where you just call the humans Americans. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are five fantasy races in this game. Elves, dwarves, halflings, trolls, and Americans. Americans. They're the cra- most crazy, unbelievable race of all. That's right. They're bananas. You will not believe what they get up to. And, uh, yeah, so that way you could give uh, them all... And you, once you crystallize it that way, right, that the uh, Americans could have an irrational rage attack, and uh, they could be... Uh, uh, more on edge against enemies and get a, a bonus against surprise. That that mm-hmm. seems uh, promising. Yeah, all kinds of possibilities open up once you decide to uh, anger half of the internet. <laughs> 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 Which is why you should never do it, kids. Right. Restrain yourselves. Live in a rut. So you never heard this. this yes, this, we were never this here. Part where we thought about this, but that is, is I think, usually the way that when uh, games try to define humans, that they in fact do as you suggested up top and. Uh, we don't think of Americans as, as an ancient uh, history race, so we often uh, <laughs> will explicitly uh, set out uh, cultures as being uh, feudal Japan or uh, uh, ancient Greece or so forth. But, of course, yes, that that is F-20 really is the Wild West. And uh, if you think about it, you could do a game where, you know, the humans are the dangerous colonizing force and they're uh, coming in and they... Uh, have all these new powers and stuff. They have all this tech- technology. If you want to introduce uh, uh, techno magic into your game, that could be the human's uh, bag, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, although the dwarves usually get to be the artificers in in these games, right? Because they have, they have the magical artifacts and uh, the, the Norse, right? And uh, and the humans uh, have this weird new thing that they can uh, replicate, and you don't have to be a 
go through centuries of training to do, and uh, the people who use them don't have to be attuned to them. So you could sort of do a uh, uh, invasion of the humans from the point of view of everybody else, and uh, uh, you could have a, a, a kind of a revisionist campaign where your, your objective is to keep those uh, fast-moving, uh, uh, ever-expanding humans out of the uh, blessed glades of the elves and so forth. And you can get some energy from that from Ariosto's Orlando Furioso, which is a story about glorious knights who bewail the coming of the gun, right? That the, the peasants are now picking up the gun, and the gun has been brought there by the devil. And if you are the elves and your humans are coming out here with the gun or its equivalent in uh, fantasy terms, then, yeah, you're like, no, these guys have been sent by bad gods. You know, make make the humans the orcs in that sense. Uh, although I think generally in, in games there because there's a few games that put you in the place of the orcs. The orcs are quite often cast as these sort of, you know, um, while not uh, nature's children in the same way that elves are, they're still meant to be sort of the noble savage in a lot of ways, or at least the noble savage uh, whose ignobilities are uh, hand-waved, and then uh, the, the the invading humans do become sort of a uh, a mank for colonializing uh, Western forces in one or another way. So I think that there's, there's definitely some doorways into discussing humans uh, within the setting that way, and I think that we may, in fact have opened those doorways so wide that we can slip through them into the next hut. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The smell of newsprint, the uh, crunching of the presses, 
the cries of newsboys suggest that we're entering an episode of the History Hut in which we are taking a particularly uh, journalistic look at history, but it's journalism with uh, flying fists and occasionally a brack snuckles and maybe a sap because we're going to look at the bloody history of uh, newspaper circulation wars in Ken's beloved Chicago. If you are used to looking at the present day only, you may have uh, missed the fact that uh, up until fairly recently, just plain old ordinary, uh, supposedly the legitimate commerce in America was often accompanied by a bit of coercion. And I uh, came across this actually while researching uh, Los Angeles in the 30s for the upcoming gumshoe one-to-one game in which uh, there was a, in Los Angeles, uh, mob-wise, is mostly pretty locked down uh, town that was sort of run from the uh, from the top done down by a uh, pretty straight-laced criminal syndicate, and they managed to keep the craziness of Chicago out. But even there, there was a period in the 30s where uh, rival movie chains were uh, dynamiting each other's movie houses. And uh, so this uh, brings us to uh, this story of where uh, the desire to be uh, king of the newsstand uh, got a little violent. So, Ken, where does this story begin? Uh, the story begins uh, in Chicago in 1910. William Randolph Hearst has uh, started the Chicago American and Chicago Examiner and is trying to replace uh, the Chicago Tribune and the Record Herald, which were the big papers at the time. And the way that he wanted to do that was to bring in um, specialists in, um, what do I want to say, workplace clearance and encouragement methods. <laughs> the The guy who ran the Record Herald had cut prices um, down to a penny for a newspaper, and Hearst and the Tribune couldn't match that. And so I think they both began wanting to crush Lawson on other grounds than economics, or God forbid, making a better paper, although I suspect that um, having... Having read my share of the Hearst papers at the time, Hearst was probably, you know, on the road to, to winning the, the war to be awesome, uh, to read on the, on the streetcar already, but he wanted to make sure. So Hearst brought his, uh, reporters in and, and told them to start making noise and, and, and causing problems for other reporters. And then he brought in a guy named Max Annenberg and Max Annenberg was a West Side uh, he grew up in a West Side Irish neighborhood, although he was Jewish, and he and his brother uh, Moses were sort of gangsters in the West Side, and their sort of turf was newsstands, and they would run those newsstands and make sure that no one messed with the newsstands on their property, and then as they rose up from being newsstand gangsters, Max and uh, Moses had been hired by, I believe, the Tribune as circulation managers then, uh, and so the, uh, American first hired, uh, Dino Banyan, uh, or Dion O'Banion, who became the chief of the North Side mob. But in his young days, he got his start knocking over Tribune delivery trucks. And so they would show up and the Tribune would, would drive their trucks out of the printing plant and drive towards their newsstands. And whenever they would pass through O'Banion territory, uh, he and his men would hijack the trucks and then take them down to the river and dump them or set them on fire or do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, the Tribune began to fight back with the Annenbergs, and the Annenbergs switched sides to the Hearst guys in 1912 when Hearst offered them more money. So suddenly the uh, McCormicks have to bring their own guys in, and uh, for a while the Annenbergs are sort of uh, running 
the wars unanswered. There was one point in 1912 when Annenberg gunman walked onto a trolley car and shot everyone who was reading a Tribune, uh, which is a little excessive, even for the Chicago newspaper wars, but it certainly set a tone. Now, was this fatally shot, or...? Uh, they, sh- they, they they killed two of them, and the, and the conductor. I assume they non-fatally shot the other people. Uh, or everyone else threw their newspaper out the window. Right. <laughs> um, uh, the other uh, gangsters that worked for the Trib were people like uh, Mossy Enright and Red Connors, uh, Frank Mackerlane. So these are all guys who are going to be in the North Side mobs and West Side Irish mobs, uh, later on, there's, it's sort of the, the staging ground. A lot of people argue for the future mobs, but of course, that's got it exactly backwards. They were already mobsters and they were brought in because they were mobsters. the mob and commerce were already completely interlinked on the street level because you couldn't do business without paying someone off. Uh, that was true in Chicago, was true in New York, was true in a lot of places. It's just that in wide open Chicago, they, um, uh, they had a a, a, diff- a different understanding, and also because Chicago had a more open ward system, it was easier to get political protection. I suspect if you were a mobster. And so, to what extent was this regarded as a bizarre escalation or anomaly? And to what extent was it just like that's the Chicago way? Well, um, here's the thing: to to for people to regard it as a bizarre anomaly, they would have had to read about it in the newspaper. Uh, which they did not do. All of the newspapers, all six of the Chicago ma- papers, kept the story of the circulation wars out of the newspapers because they didn't want people to equate picking up a newspaper with getting firebombed. Uh, the only so paper. What good does it do you to shoot a train full of uh, the wrong newspaper readers if no one, if there's no publicity? <laughs> well, you would think so, but the, the the goal was to settle it off the front pages so that the front pages could go on, you know, talking about. Um, uh, uh, women caught in love nests and whatnot. Uh, so the only paper that actually covered the circulation wars was a paper called the Chicago Socialist, which um, wanted a grand jury investigation of all of its rival papers by an odd coincidence. And uh, no one did that uh, because as in Los Angeles, the newspaper's owners were people like William Randolph Hearst and uh, Colonel McCormick, who were hugely influential uh, real estate tycoons and other kinds of political power. And also they could endorse or not endorse candidates, which meant gave them a certain amount of power. So the the Hearst papers began to send out Q-ships, so they'd send out fake delivery trucks that were staffed with gunmen, and when the Tribune gunmen would ambush them, the uh, Hearst gunmen would come out and there'd be gun battles in the street. Uh, they'd um, begin to escort them with armored cars uh, back and forth. It was kind of a big deal. Uh, but again, no one really... It was it was a big deal in, in sort of the the undernews. And again, in, in 1910, there was plenty of stuff that didn't get into papers, right? I mean, there was all manner of uh, sort of journalistic covenants of you don't print that about that guy and you do print that about this other guy. And this was just one of the things no one printed because, again, to be called out as, you know, they're trying to firebomb our newsstand, you were immediately vulnerable to a you firebombed our newsstand argument and then everyone gets indicted. So right. no one so wanted that to happen. In game terms, you find out what's going on in the newspaper wars with your streetwise skill, not with your research skill. Not with your research skill, exactly. And um, I mean, it, it. I suppose this is a, uh, a salutary lesson to people who say that the vampires couldn't keep their bloody turf wars a secret in the in the uh, world of darkness because newspapers were able to keep bloody turf wars a secret and they don't even have supernatural powers. Yeah, they just control the media <laughs> as I think vampires do in the world of darkness, if I recall I think correctly. vampires may. Um, uh, certainly people have said awful, awful things about the Annenbergs, um, uh, which in many cases were completely justified. Walter Annenberg, of course, 
um, uh, Max's uh, nephew grew up to become Nixon's uh, sort of uh, right-hand man. Uh, he uh, published the TV guide, among other things, and then became ambassador to Great Britain, had all manner of other uh, highlights of his uh, publishorial career. Yes, the Annenberg Foundation uh, yes. uh, underwrites a lot of PBS programming now. Precisely. And had things worked a little bit differently, perhaps the Capone Foundation would be uh, saving its conscience through funding NPR or whatever. Yeah, he just wasn't uh, upward mobility focused enough. So how did this eventually uh, come to an end? Well, it eventually came to an end because the Tribune just began to get more and more circulation. And the Hearst Papers fundamentally just sort of called the fight off. Uh, About 27 people had died um, uh, over the course of the newspaper wars. Uh, In 1917, uh, America got into the actual wars, and I think people stopped tolerating a lot of this foolishness. Uh, in the way, uh, the newspapers uh, began to be more directed uh, from upstairs. They also had genuine labor problems and they didn't have spare manpower to drive around and firebomb things. And one of the final sort of uh, things to put the kibosh on it, I suspect, was that Big Bill Thompson, the last Republican mayor of Chicago, elected in 1919, put a man uh, in charge of the police department, made his police chief, Charles Fitzmorris, a guy who was the city editor for Hearst's Chicago American. So... Once the police could actually intervene and would actually intervene, I think that sort of tamped it down a little bit as well. Uh, and by then, as I say, the Tribune had already added another uh, probably 100,000 readers over the course of the of the decade. And so the Hearsts couldn't really, again, prosecute the Tribune without the worries of it, you know, coming back to bite them. But everyone, I think, had, was it, it was in their interest to call the war over. And uh, move on to other things. So what sort of a gaming use might we make of this? If you're going to come up with a a scenario that revolved around the newspaper wars, how would that work? I think what you might... I mean, there's a number of possibilities, right? You could have one of the smaller papers that the uh, characters are all, you know, vaguely associated with. And... Uh, they're, you know, they, they could just be sort of small fish in a, in a, in a big fish war. And that could be a, just a total straightforward, you hit our guys, they hit your guys, let's you and him fight type, uh, a Shakespearean Machiavellian situation. Or you could go into the supernatural in which the player characters, uh, need to keep some, uh, story out of the papers because it will have the information that cultists need to raise, uh, Shubnigaroth or something. And so they, you know, burn and blow up a, a bunch of newspaper trucks and are then drawn into the war that way or can use that to hide the the body, if you will, of their own killing of a given story. You could have a sort of a symbolic component to it if you're playing sort of a high uh, urban fantasy game in which the uh, newspaper wars are the front of a war between uh the the Sealy and the Unsealy or the or the Crow people and the um uh, uh coyote people or whatever it is you wanted to make your urban fantasy about. The newspaper wars could just be one front in that or a symbolic uh element of it. And then you could dive down and look at uh you know Hearst as and, and McCormick as sort of mouthpieces, oracles, literally, that are funneling out the word of the supernatural into newspapers. And so you have a, uh, it, it would be like a war between the Delphic and the Pythian Oracle in that sense. Right. And the incident where just ordinary newspaper readers are shot can make you a great sort of uh, false cover for whatever the mystery uh, you want people to be solving is. So uh, you can have a car full of people reading newspapers shot. But really, the whole point of that is as cover 
for why we really shot this one particular person. And then your job as the investigators is to tear off that false layer and then find out what was really done under the cover of seeming like part of the newspaper wars. Yeah, you could you could walk on and, and you know, you've got the four dead bodies on the on the uh, streetcar. And one of them, you go uh, to his wife or whatever, and he says he was shot for reading the Tribune. And she could say, why, he was a Chicago record man. He wouldn't have touched that rag. And then <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, interesting. Mm. Maybe this was a cover for something. Yes, and then that cover can lead you to uh, cultists or uh, super science or uh, whatever it is that is uh, part of the game they're running. Or the, the, the big black limousine truck that would drive around and and uh, and uh, and uh, shoot up newsstands might be a truck sent by the devil or something to, to sow discord in, in the earthly paradise that is Chicago. And in the sort of Wonder Woman comics way where Ares is actually behind all wars and no one ever actually wants oil, you have... Uh, a, a situation where there is a supernatural force that is causing the war and you have to track it down and stop it. Right. And you could also sort of take a leaf out of that and do a modern uh, game, particularly a superhero game where the superhero genre, particularly on TV, tends to be very mun- municipally focused mm-hmm. and all about the spirit of your city. So it could be that uh, a supervillain who's coming in and trying to take over the town wants to make sure that the the one honest newspaper that he can't buy off is... Uh, the Daily Planet. Yes, exactly. And so uh, you, you can have a kryptonite-laced uh, or lead-laced trucks driving around uh, shooting up uh, the Daily Planet. Or in the modern day, uh, you could have a cyber war between newspapers, right? That uh, you could uh, be tracking down who it is who keeps launching a denial-of-service attacks against the Daily Planet just when they're about to reveal what Lex Luthor is up to. Right. Instead of a 38 caliber circulation drive, you could have a 404 caliber circulation drive. Right. And, uh, and then you could have, uh, super villains attacking, uh, the, uh, broadcast towers and, uh, hitting crucial Wi-Fi uh, spots and, and so forth. So I think, uh, we've, uh, well limbed, uh, this exciting, uh, chapter and by no means the only chapter of, uh, uh, violence and coercion, uh, underlying what is, uh, supposedly, uh, what we would think of as ordinary business. And of course, the magazine and newspaper trade uh, distribution uh, went on to be mobbed up for many, many years. Yes, and, right. Uh, Including the lovely and talented comic books that we uh, used to adduce uh, newspaper war violence in game terms were themselves the products of, at the very least, uh, money laundering by mobsters, and in many cases were actual mob fronts. Exactly. Uh, well, it's time to uh, then close up our own newsstand and uh, hope to dodge some bullets as we head uh, crouched over uh, via this commercial to our next hut. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. 
And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. It's time for another of our intermittent looks at the business of gaming. And in this case, I thought we would uh, turn over in our minds the implications of uh, Wizards of the Coast and uh, drive throughs uh, partnering attempt to open up not just the uh, rules of the current version of uh, D&D 5, the OGL for that has just landed, but along with that, they've announced the Dungeon Masters Guild, which is an opportunity within the particular environment offered by uh, Watsi and Drive-Thru for people to create uh, Dungeons & Dragons material for sale in, in PDF form that is uh, not just based on the rules, but based on their flagship setting. And that's a, a big shift in thinking. Uh, traditionally, uh, those of us in the role-playing business have learned to uh, loosen up about rules uh, and their availability and reuse. Um, I think almost uh, entirely to uh, the benefit of people who have opened them up. But the setting has always been another Rubicon because we've always associated that is the property that we might then be able to license to other media. And you want to make sure that the uh, ownership of that remains really clear. And it's sort of uh, uh, nervous making in terms of opening up what you're doing to uh, third parties that you don't necessarily have a lot of control over. And there are worries associated with that, which we might get into uh, in more detail. But certainly, uh, Wizards is not the first entity to make their IP available to uh, fans. There's a uh, an effort, or was an effort at one point anyway, to make fan fiction uh, a thing that had uh, uh, money and uh, ordinary people participating in it. And in fact, uh, ironically, one of the properties that was made available through that was the Vampire Diaries, which then allowed the original freelancer who created that property as a work-for-hire proposition to then go back to it, uh, mm -hmm. which was a, a weird, interesting uh, irony. So uh, I guess the first question is, uh, Ken, do you think this is a, a big new thing that other people will choose to emulate or something that will turn out to be an interesting, cool announcement, but we won't necessarily be talking about a lot in a few years? Well, I think that a lot of the question is going to rise and fall on how it is perceived to have done for uh Wizards, right? And and what it does for the the viability of Dungeons and Dragons going forward because Wizards has obviously decided that they are going to go uh the other way than they did with the 3rd edition boom and to a lesser extent with 4th edition and rather than drown the marketplace in supplements from them, they're going to release a very few more adventure focused supplements and it doesn't look like an awful lot of splat books at all. Uh, but you know, even not a lot of adventures compared to, you know, the palmy days of first and second edition. So the great 
goal for all role-playing game publishers is to get people playing the game. And one of the easiest ways, and certainly one of the best ways with uh, F20, is to have a pre-plotted adventure that you can run without having to you stat everything up yourself. So the absence of adventure material for 5th edition had to have been sort of grading on them, and they wanted to you know, prime the pump a little bit. And what better way to prime the pump than they would think than open up the signature setting of fifth edition, the forgotten realms for people to set their own adventures in. And that immediately solves a lot of the problems of people who wanted to write adventures or, you know, of the, of the theory that, you know, well, no one's going to read my stupid world when they could be reading awesome stuff in the forgotten realms. If you, uh, let people homestead the Forgotten Realms, then you get lots more adventure support. You keep driving them towards the core Forgotten Realms property, and you uh, sort of, you know, kill two birds with one stone uh, that way. And if it turns out that the only thing that happens on the Dungeon Master's Guild, which is what the 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 space that you know, people are allowed to create Dungeon uh, 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 Forgotten Realms stuff is called, uh, if the only thing that happens there is a whole flood of uh, brother-in-law campaigns and thinly veiled ripoffs of the Underdark, then the, then it may not look like success. But if, you know, the next Kobold Press or the next, um, uh, Paizo comes out of this, if someone winds up being able to produce really good material that really, really plays into people's need for, uh, strong adventures and strong setting material within the Forgotten Realms, I think that not only will wizards then follow it up, with, uh, you know, opening up other, other worlds. And they've already said Forgotten Realms is just the first. We're going to be opening up other properties later on. Uh, but I think that we'll also be, have maybe, uh, the, uh, guys who own World of Darkness take a look at it and say, well, no, we've never really had adventures as our strong suit in the World of Darkness. And if we could get people to write them, maybe that's a thing. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, the Shadowrun guys might look at that. I don't know to the same extent if it's as applicable for, uh, Call of Cthulhu, because right now, Lovecraft being in the public domain, anyone can write a Cthulhu Mythos adventure, and the BRP being an open source uh, uh, rule set, anyone can practically write a Call of Cthulhu uh, Mythos adventure. Uh, same deal with Gumshoe and Trail, right? Right. Uh, you just have to be aware of the differences between the public domain Lovecraft and what people, and the Chaosium version of Lovecraft, which a lot mm -hmm. of people confuse with one another yes uh, but there's uh, uh pitfalls associated with that and those uh, might be coming to a head so mm -hmm. uh, kind of a different topic though yes very much <laughs> a different topic um the trick i think is to find a setting that already has a devoted user base i don't think that you could create a new or relatively new setting and uh, get very far with it necessarily but it certainly Something that, you know, at the next Pelgrim meeting, we'll probably all, the Brain Trust might want to ask ourselves, well, you know, what are the upsides and the downsides of saying, okay, well, so far we've made the rules available through uh, open uh, source. What if we say, hey, it's okay to do uh, esoterrorists uh, adventures and you can use all the details and the creatures and stuff. And that's fine by us because or the, Ashen Stars, or, for example, Ashen which is Stars. another uh, place that you need to um, make up. Well, Ashen Stars is is such a strong and specific setting, right? I mean, Mutant City Blues is just your city with superheroes to a large extent, right? But with Ashen Stars, you've got all of those vibes, and because Gumshoe games are really uh, responsive to good adventure content that that uh, that shows off their their paces, something like an open adventure system 
for uh for Ashton Star or even new setting material, right? You make up a planet, you make up new spaceships, whatever else, that could maybe jumpstart uh that universe. And maybe it won't, I don't know, necessarily. Right. And and unlike a lot of the other uh, some of the gumshoe settings are have a lot of here, set this dial to this element or this element, and that's your forte mm-hmm. particularly is to say, here's you know, six different ways that you could create your Knights Black Agents world and there's no particular uh yes or no to any of them. Whereas Ash and Stars um and uh the Esoteris, I tend to kind of say, well here's the setting that I think works best for this experience. And there uh isn't a lot of dial setting there. So it might mm-hmm. be that that's and, and either one of those could wind up being stronger if you open them up because uh you could have, you know, uh a whole bunch of people doing, well here's here's this vampire conspiracy that's totally different from this other vampire conspiracy, or here's this planet that totally fits in with Ashen Stars. The question is whether there's a um, enough people invested in, in those settings that you'd produce enough stuff to make it seem uh, worthwhile compared to a few of the downside risks. And the big downside risk is that once you open up your setting, that creates the possibility that somebody will come along and do something really reprehensible with it, and if you're then taking it to, you know, if you get a, a nibble for a TV or movies or a novel line some, or something, and then the, the developer who's looking at this uh, downloads uh, some third-party thing that is really horrifying and goes, oh, man, I didn't know that your setting had all this in it, uh, where this is the worst thing you could possibly imagine. And you're like, whoa, whoa, no, that's not us, right? That's the, I think, the fear of uh, not losing legal control of your setting, but losing sort of perceptual moral control of, of the setting. And again, obviously wizards is going to be keeping an eye on stuff that's published in the dungeon masters guild and will take down stuff that is objectionable. Uh, and they reserve the right to do that. So if you've published some awful thing in the forgotten realms, uh, then wizards will just yank it. And, uh, the question I guess is, if you're wizards, yeah, you can afford to have a guy whose job is to read everything that's published for your setting. And what a great job that would be. Um, but, you know, a smaller company might not have those resources or a company even that's more distributed in the way that uh, White Wolf is now, where the role playing game is sort of under the aegis of Onyx Path, but the world is owned by uh, the Swedes now. So, you know, who would have control over that? You know, I suppose it'd be whoever des- decides to open it up, but you might have a system where one guy wants to take it down and the other guy doesn't, and then you're 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 in a um uh, a, a, a tangle that you wouldn't be necessarily with a more unitary, even a, a smaller brand. Yeah, because it just requires a lot of uh, person hours to go through all of that stuff, and uh, I guess the other alternative would have a really robust reporting system where you have a group of trusted fans and you have a sort of a, a group of people sort of crowdsourcing the effort of making sure that everything is uh, within uh, bounds. And in a horror world like Esoteris, where there's a lot of really disturbing material in there on purpose, that's uh, possibly a little harder distinction to make mm-hmm. than, for example, the uh, kind of PG-13 uh, D&D world. You know, you know uh, when uh, the vile darkness creeping into the Forgotten Realms has gotten just too vile, that's sort of an easier... Uh, kind of test that you could possibly uh, outsource to others. And right now, Wizards is maintaining a relatively, uh, you know, they've not produced, for example, a list of everything that is allowed versus everything that isn't allowed, either in subject matter or in terms of 
the Forgotten Realms because the Forgotten Realms have got their tentacles into everything. So it's hard to say if, you know, is Spelljammer part of the Forgotten Realms because it happens up in space or, or whatever. And I suppose that's all going to be, you know, clarified. We should also mention that for a while, and I don't know if it's still true, you could publish stuff in the Traveler universe, but it just had to be in one quadrant. Right. There was an open quadrant where you could publish official Traveler Universe material under the OGL, uh, but um, it could only be in that quadrant and it couldn't be anything that affected the whole universe. So it's this experiment has happened before. And the fact that I don't I don't think it set the world on fire, but that might have been because it was too limited a part of the Traveler uh, space or because uh, Traveler itself has never really had a coherent corporate presence uh, since the early days uh, when Mark Miller ran it, and it was GDW. At, at the risk of bringing up a, a new point, as we're <laughs> going in this segment, <laughs> yeah. um, I guess that is the other pitfall, is the sense of continuity investment that um, I think even more so than creators, there are a lot of fans who are invested in the idea of this world is real, these uh, I want to know the real version of this world and master its continuity, it doesn't feel as special to me now that we're just letting people like me mess with it and create new things. And maybe I don't feel the same way about this tavern that was written up uh, on the Dungeon Masters Guild uh, for uh, Forgotten Realms as I did for this other tavern that has the imprimatur of uh, being official part of the continuity. And uh, a lot of uh, it is possible that some people will feel less attached to the setting if it's not clear which parts of the, the, you know, the more continuity you introduce and the less sort of modular, here's a new spell, here's a new tavern that you're creating, you may find that the, the things that people like the most about the Forgotten Realms are also the things that they don't necessarily want you as third-party creators uh, doing. And uh, that's the, the whole question of maintaining a, a continuity and a narrative through a setting, I guess, is a, a different topic that we've uh, touched on as well. But you, uh, I think, also want to make sure that there's a certain uh, baseline of quality associated with those things or that, and, and I guess that's probably a self-correcting thing, that people will tend to do the sorts of things that sell and get a reaction. And I suspect that the kinds of things that do very well are the very pick up and plug into my existing thing uh, sorts of bits so that uh, you know, people don't probably don't want a big thing that changes the history of the uh, the Sugwagon in the Forgotten Realms, but they might like a cool grotto full of Sugwagon that they can uh, send their adventurers into. The um the other thing I think is that I don't know the Forgotten Realms fan community very well because they have a wonderful fandom that is not mine. But for example, I could see this being a problem if you've got a setting where there are very much two schools of thought, right? Where if, if there was in the Forgotten Realms, one batch of people that said, uh, the whole reason to be in the Forgotten Realms is to hunt and kill Elminster. And the other people are like, no, Elminster is a beloved figure who we, we venerate. And so I, I could see maybe a problem with someone doing a dungeon that's called Killminster, which would be a great name for a dungeon, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, then the other guys are like trashing it and getting mad at it. And you, you sort of fork the property within this thing so that people are like, is, are you a Killminster world or a not Killminster world? Are you a good realms or evil realms? And so you could wind up starting a civil war in your own audience that by deft, uh, and more tight control, you can avoid simply by leaving the question open. 
Um, you know, a, a parallel in the Lovecraft world would be, uh, Durleth mythos versus, uh, old school Lovecraft mythos. You know, it's like a lot of people are really, really mad about elder signs. And so, you know, if you're, if you had some sort of system where half the games have elder signs and the other half don't, that could cause problems for interoperability as well as problems for, you know, forking your own brand accidentally. Right. Which is what, uh, TSR did in the first place, but when the, uh, focus to settings first occurred, and initially, it seemed like a great idea to keep bringing up uh, new settings and new styles of play, but that divided up the audience. So uh, what happens if, you know, as you suggest, there's a, a schism within uh, Forgotten Realms? But there are a lot of worlds that I can think of that people really love that they don't necessarily uh, want to see played with in that way. I think Glorantha, for example, is one where it's very uh, hard well, to... still has a living god. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, we, we have to and, wait and until that living God keeps saying, "Make it your own." And a lot of people keep saying, "No, we want no, yours. You, we, we, we want, we want the God one." Yes. Um, so I, I think we've uh, pretty much uh, covered this and have uh, run slightly over time. So I think it's time to uh, uh, close up this uh, green visored analysis of uh, the hobby gaming business and uh, get ready for our uh, final hut. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness you can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid Zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. The walk up the creaky staircase into the Victorian parlor has added a retina scanner and also a series of cameras that follow you whenever you move. We have wandered into a trade-crafted version of the Consulting Occultist's office, the Consulting Occultist Tradecraft Hut, which uh, obviously, be being one of those uh, mergers that was driven by uh, some sort of business-suited weirdos in um, uh, New York, as opposed to the good, hardworking people on the ground, but there you go. In the the hybrid hut, however, we encounter the enigmatic, or actually not that damn enigmatic, but certainly weird and interesting figure of Tom Dryberg, who uh, managed to 
run the Labour Party while doing things that got lesser men arrested an awful lot. Yes. Uh, and not just the, um, uh, the rough sex with sailors, but also Satanism. So what's up with Tom Dryberg, my friend? Uh, so, uh, Tom Dryberg, uh, was, uh, born in 1905. He died in 1976 and he flourished basically from the, uh, thirties until his uh, death. And his, uh, I would characterize him as kind of the insider's outsider or the outsider's insider. I'm not sure which of those, but he's one of those guys who, uh, was a peripheral figure in the stories of a whole bunch of other major figures. He was a, a friend and confidant and advisor to Lord Mountbatten. He uh, was a longtime uh, uh, columnist. He, uh, in the 60s, he hung out with the Cray brothers and uh, uh, tried to convince Mick Jagger to go into labor politics. <laughs> Among other things. <laughs> and I will start... Uh, a lot of this is from uh, a really great book that I would highly recommend. It's out of print, but you can order it uh, used uh, from Amazon, and it will come to you from a seller somewhere in the UK. And that is The Soul of Indiscretion, Tom Dryberg, Poet, Philanderer, Legislator, and Outlaw. And poet is a little bit of a, I think, a, a reach. Uh, <laughs> but it starts by quoting his uh, obituary, which raised a lot of eyebrows in 1976 when it came out, because one of the things it says is the thing that was not said at that time. Uh, and I will uh, quote that uh, beginning of that obituary as well from the Times. Tom Dryberg, who worked for some years under the name of William Hickey and died under the name of Lord Bradwell, was a journalist, an intellectual, a drinking man, a gossip, a high churchman, a liturgist, a homosexual, a friend of Lord Beaverbrook, an enemy of Lord Beaverbrook, an employee and biographer of Lord Beaverbrook, a politician of the left, a member of Parliament, a member of the Labour Party National Executive, a stylist, an unreliable man of undoubted distinction. He looked and talked like a bishop, not least in the bohemian clubs which he frequented. He was the admiration and despair of his friends and acquaintances. <laughs> and although that was written by the Times obituarist, uh, Francis Ween, the author of this book, maintains that level of wit and style throughout and uh, makes it a cracking great read, whether you uh, admire Tom Dryberg or think of him as a, a major figure or a, a footnote. You mentioned that he ran the Labor Party, and uh, the story of Tom Dryberg turns out to be, as it is often told, full of uh, facts or assertions that are too good to check. <laughs> sadly, oh, sadly. That's my kind. <laughs> yes. So, yes, he was head of the Labor Party executive for many, many years, and one time he was chairman, but that post uh, sounds more impressive than it really is. It's more of a sort of a functionary uh, party-level post. It's, uh, it would be like being head of the RNC, not something that uh, yes. actually well, holds it. If the head of the RNC were um, uh, a, a communist, that would it'd still probably be worth mentioning, I think. It's less surprising <laughs> that the head of the Labor Party... In it the, is less uh, surprising, but it's still a little surprising, I right. think. Um so I guess we should start with the thing that makes him interesting to a, a combined meeting of the consulting occultists and the tradecraft hut, because among the things... That, <laughs> among uh, his many hats. <laughs> uh, among his many too-good-to-check hats um, is the uh, assertion uh, repeated by uh, Gary Lockman in his uh, biography of uh, uh, Aleister Crowley and by uh, many others, is that Dryberg was for many years a Russian spy. Uh, Lachman also uh, quotes uh, the uh, psychologist and author Anthony Storr as saying that Tom Dryberg was the only man he met who he could describe as truly evil. And Storr did say that, but he said that about 
his actions towards uh, his uh, wife, who he never should have married and treated abominably, not about uh, his involvement <laughs> with the occult or with uh, spying. Because, in fact, it turns out that there's uh, little evidence that he uh, really ever was a spy or had access to anything that would get you in trouble if you told it to the Russians. Uh, much less, And he was accused of being a double agent. Even the accusation that he spied for British intelligence against the Communist Party is basically one story told by Anthony Blunt, whose details do not match uh, the historical record. <laughs> and, and who perhaps has a vested interest in confusing the record. <laughs> very much has a vested interest in, uh, in deflecting interest elsewhere. And I mean, we, we do know uh, for a fact uh, that his name appears in the Matrokin archive. He was a KGB source. Now, whether or not that makes him a KGB spy is a different question because again, you can be a source without being a spy. And just because your name shows up with a code name does not mean that you are on the payroll or being blackmailed by the KGB. Although obviously Matrokin says he was, right. but uh, he's definitely uh, got some connection to the KGB. If only because he's buddies, as you point out with Anthony Blunt, but he's also, as you also point out, not in any position to have known anything because he was, you know, not um, uh, close to the uh, the halls of, of military power or national security, uh, despite being an MP and uh, a lord and whatnot. Right. And and the lord thing happens very, very late in the day. Yeah. Basically, what it seems like the case is, is that he knew everybody uh, in both communist uh, circles and in right wing circles. Uh, he went to dinner with everybody and... Uh, even before you got drinks in him, he would notoriously tell you everything he knew about anything, much of which was extremely indiscreet. So yes. <laughs> the thought that he uh, uh, shared a lot of gossip with uh, someone who then uh, went back to the, uh, his KGB bosses and said, uh, Tom Dryberg is a great source. Uh, that was probably absolutely true. But there's no evidence at all that he engaged in any spying. The, the uh, Chapman Pincher accuses him of being a double agent. Chapman Pincher is a, a journalist on spying who uh, has somewhat of a Judith Miller-like relationship to uh, uh, the, the powers that be. Uh, and uh, again, doesn't ever really produce anything of any sort. And he accuses him of something that uh, he himself uh, had a hand in, which was that uh, Dryberg went to uh, Moscow to interview Guy Burgess after Burgess's defection. And in that interview, uh, Burgess said something that actually violated the Official Secrets Act, which he had not done up until that point. There was actually no evidence that they could get Burgess on if he ever came back, which he didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the accusation there was that both the KGB and MI5 wanted him to say something that would prevent him from going back to Russia. And somehow Dreiberg knew this. And, or back to England. And, and back, or sorry, and back to England. And so... Again, uh, the the very worst accusation is that he did something that made everybody happy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, there are many worse accusations, but they are less plausible. Yes. Uh, and Pincher, we should mention, also believed that Roger Hollis, the uh, head of MI5, was a double agent. So Pincher is not uh, 100%. I mean, I suppose it's outside the box possible, but it's not likely. I mean, even people who think Angleton was right think that Hollis is a bridge too far in a lot of cases. So Right. Um, and so uh, having... Uh, sadly dispense with the idea that he was a Russian spy for many years, which would make this the rest of this anecdote uh, uh, cooler. The uh, There is a really fascinating story that happens in 1934 where Dreiberg is someone who knows 
everybody, and he entered the circle of Aleister Crowley uh, when he was... Uh, Crowley actually saw this avant-garde poem that he uh, wrote uh, while at, uh, was he at Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, let's consider those the same for the point of this anecdote, so I don't have to look it up. And then reached out to him uh, to use that horrible phrase. <laughs> well, I think with Tom Dreiberg, it was there probably would, more yeah, likely than otherwise. There would be reaching involved. <laughs> there would be some reaching out. He was an Oxford man, by the way. Oh, there we go. Um, and so Crowley contacted him, and it seems that Crowley thought that he was rich. <laughs> and it seems that Crowley went through his whole life thinking that Dryberg was rich when he was not. He was the son of a, a minor colonial official who had already fallen into uh, a dire uh, health and financial straits by the time he got to Oxford. At any rate, uh, Crowley declared him the heir to the beast, and at one point he was supposed to be uh, his heir apparent. And even many years later, he made a list of influential people who he could contact for money, and Dryberg was on it. And, Dry and that's hilarious, because Dryberg was uh, famously overdrawn at his bank the, his entire life. At any rate, Dryberg somehow acquires a handwritten manuscript in a beautiful bound volume uh, written by Crowley that Crowley doesn't know where it is after a while. And uh, many years later in the 70s, the, uh, apart from his Burgess interview, the most successful financial transaction he ever makes is selling that book to uh, Jimmy Page. He's a case of someone uh, who used Crowley instead of being used by Crowley, which is, uh, I think we can all, uh, you know, get behind that. As get it behind were. that, absolutely. But in 1934, he doesn't just know Crowley. Of course, he also knows Dennis Wheatley. And he also knows Maxwell Knight, uh, the head of MI5 and the guy that M is based on. And in fact, uh, now, uh, we should probably give Knight his own segment later. Oh, God, yes. Yes. <laughs> but for the purposes of this, you got to know that uh, Dryberg, who is a very uh, enthusiastic uh, cottager, uh, and he liked uh, young, uh, taut, uh, working class men uh, in particular, uh, you would think on the surface that this would be strange that he have a friendship with Maxwell Knight, because Max Knight really hated homosexuals and he really and wanted, he wanted you to know <laughs> that he really hated homosexuals he made a big point of that to the point he hated homosexuals so much that he didn't consummate his relationship with, with any of his three wives or his mistress and uh, well you know where this is going yeah right uh, he had a huge huge crush on dryberg which uh weirdly was un unrequited uh, <laughs> usually uh dryberg was more obliging than that but at any rate wheatley is a founder member in 1934 of the uh, a club called the Paternosters, which was uh, basically a club for authors and critics. And Wheatley got the great idea that uh, they should also admit journalists, for example, people who wrote extremely popular uh, cultural slash uh, gossip columns, as Dreiberg did at that time and for many years, uh, to join because uh, they could then promote the works of the authors in their columns. And so he became <laughs> acquainted with Dreiberg. And uh, Dryberg introduced him to uh, Knight or vice versa. And through that, they were both fascinated by Dryberg's Crowley connection and therefore both went to dinner with Dryberg and Crowley in order to become initiated uh, as uh, members of uh, Crowley's uh, Felomite organization. And that's where the research comes from that went into uh, Wheatley's occult novels and uh, uh Knight also wrote uh, thrillers, and they're, I guess they're even less distinguished <laughs> than anybody else's. It seems like everybody uh, in the British defense establishment was either a thriller writer, uh, a uh, homosexual, or both. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we've got this great uh, meeting 
of these people. We don't know entirely what happened and what came of it, but of course, if we're willing to overlook that things are too good to check, Ken, what would we do with that? Well, I mean, uh, Maxwell Knight is also, uh, he is even more anti-communist than he was anti-homosexual. Um, he was so anti-communist that he did consummate his relationship with the British fascists, uh, is how anti-communist he was. Um, but he's also, uh, a, a, a enthusiastic occultist. And Crowley, of course, der- derives a huge amount of his magical energies from, uh, antinomian sex acts. Whatever they, whatever's allowed, is not going to give you magic. Whatever's not allowed is going to give you magic. And of course, there's, uh, at the time, the type of sex acts that, uh, Tom Dryberg was into were very much not allowed. So. Very much illegal. They could have very ended much his career if he was caught, which he was on a couple of occasions, but managed to uh, talk his way, his out. way out of them. So, um, so what you can begin with is setting up a, uh, some sort of tie between them, right? It's, it's like the, the old setup for, uh, the thriller where the, these figures have all done something horrible, not, you know, I, I know who you did last summer. And so they've, they've all done something horrible to someone, uh, for magical power, right? So Dryberg gets the power to e- eel out of everything and Crowley gets the knowledge of the guardian angel and, uh, Dennis Wheatley gets a muse to, to, uh, uh, to turn out novels with and, uh, Maxwell Knight gets, um, uh, uh, uh um, uh, leverage in the corridors of power, whatever it happens to be, knowledge of what the communists are up to. And so they've all gotten something. And then as they grow apart and go their own separate ways, that night of, of magical, uh, bad, uh, antinomian sex, uh, hangs over them. And so they can all be stalked by sort of, uh, succubus or incubus demons, right? And so yeah, you have. Well, it could be a succubus. It could be an incubus. You know, you don't know. Um, either way, they're, they're going to be stalked by them. And so it will be uh, working class either way. It will be a working class demon. None of your, none of your fancy Alan Rickman demons. Something could be set, you know, in the, in in the late sixties or, um, it would have to be in the late sixties because, uh, Knight dies in 68, but it could be set during the rise of Jimmy Page where the magical, uh, cycles of Britain are all being kicked up again. And so these, uh, these sins that they committed back in 1934 are coming forward to haunt them. And you have to penetrate, uh, probably about five different underworlds to figure out what's, uh, what exactly is going on. And it uh, becomes what sort of the ghost story approach where I'll tell you what the worst thing I ever did was. And it turns out it's all the same thing. So at any rate, this is a, an example of a figure who uh, sort of works his way through uh, all sorts of different levels of society. And I guess he's kind of your uh, archetypal uh Trail of Cthulhu dilettante character, except that he doesn't have a credit rating. He just seems like he does. And uh, is a really f- uh, uh, fascinating uh, figure. He definitely has a, a dark side, but also is, uh, I think, kind of uh, heroic in his uh, uh, defiance of and celebration of, uh, of norms. And uh, the book, uh, The Soul of Indiscretion, Tom Dryberg, uh, written by Francis Ween, uh, like I said, you'll have to order it uh, used, uh, but they're readily available, and used books are easier to get than they ever were, and it's uh, something that I would uh, highly recommend to everybody. It's just a, a great uh, read and a, sort of a fascinating uh, window into uh, British history from the uh, uh, 20s and 30s up to the mid-70s. And on that note, I think uh, we can all go and uh, declare this podcast too good to check, and therefore at an end. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Prove your essential humanity by hitting the donate button at CountyRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Manfred Gabriel. And Rick Neal. Watch out for our Patreon, whose ducks are ever more rapidly coming into alignment. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>